Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christoph Odinitz, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Luis Lobo Guerrero, Professor of History and Theory of International Relations at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Professor Lobo Guerrero's work is in post-structuralist thought, history of early modern science, historical epistemology, and geopolitics, including topics of biopolitics and security, and the big questions of globality and connectivity. His books include Ensuring Life, Value, Security, and Risk, 2016, Ensuring War, Sovereignty, Security, and Risk, 2013, and his first book, Ensuring Security, Biopolitics, Security, and Risk, from 2012. He also has two edited volumes, Mapping, Connectivity, and the Making of European Empires, and the book we are talking about today, Imaginaries of Connectivity, the Creation of Novel Spaces of Governance. Um, So, Professor Lobo Guerrero, welcome, and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, and congratulations on this publication and your extremely interesting work. Thank you very much, Christoph, and thank you for hosting this talk today. My pleasure. So, um, Luis, uh, you are the editor of Imaginaries of Connectivity, the Creation of Novel Spaces and Governance, along with uh, Suvi Alt and Martin Meyer. It's published by Roman and Littlefield in 2020, and it's part of a series called Global Epistemics. It contains 12 essays, including the introduction, conclusion, and epilogue. Uh, It's an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary discussion of how humans have developed Technologies of Knowledge, Governance, and Power, in the words of the series editor. Would you explain what that means? Well, basically, um, I need to start by saying that uh, this, is, this is a bit of a side project that seeks to open up some spaces of thought, uh, mostly for uh, PhD students at this stage. Because we're still, regardless of so much talk about trans- transdisciplinary in and transdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, postdisciplinarity, and all, all these other variants, 
we still stuck very much with the problem of the discipline. And uh, you see that in the university curricula, but you also see it in funding agencies and, and, and things that come out of that. Uh, but in scholarly work, in reality, we'll never, we're never really dealing with disciplines. We're dealing with problems and problems which are uh, uh, that have to, have to do with our being in the world. And the big problem that I've been thinking of for, for many years now is how is it that we can that we come to think about connectivity in the everyday life and also in, in, in history in relation to the creation of spaces and, and specifically in, in relation to global spaces. When we talk about connectivity, we always talk about the effect, the connectivity effect. So you turn on the switch in the room and then the light goes on. That's a connectivity effect. But we really wonder what are the terms under which whatever flows through those systems creates that effect. So I've been thinking that it's very important to open up connectivity to scrutiny and not just to describe how how things uh, are connected, but under which terms do they connect and disconnect. Normally we notice that something was connected when it gets disconnected or when the connectivity system fails. So anyway, I thought about uh, uh, doing this through a trilogy of volumes and involving academics from different areas uh, of study and different career levels as well. And I came up with this trilogy, of which this book is the first one, Imaginers of Connectivity and the Creation of Novel Spaces of Governance. You mentioned the second one, which just came, which just came out in July, which is Mapping, Connectivity, and European Empire. We're now putting together the third volume, which is about navigation, connectivity, and the opening up of space. So we're, we're looking at three specific fields, imaginaries, mapping, and navigation as fields through which we can uh, uh, open up that idea of connectivity to scrutiny. And, and we do it in different historical moments and through different uh, uh, specific, specific registers and these kinds of things. But... Uh, more related to your question, um, when you talk about um, uh, technologies of knowledge, governance, and power, and that's how the series editor has presented this, um, what's very interesting for us collectively in these three volumes is to think that actually there are such things as technologies of thought. And, 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 and here we're following very much the, the ideas of, of the old uh, Michel Foucault. In uh, a technology of thought means that there's nothing natural to it. Uh, thought is highly engineered, uh, to use a colloquial term. And by that, I mean that we are continuously inventing the terms upon which we get to think about things. And that leaves traces in history. That leaves traces which we call epistemological traces that we can go and explore and we can research. And the value of doing that is that it allows us then to understand how things were thought in a particular time in their own context, uh, within historical studies and and the the study of international relations, um, we're always falling falling into problems of, um, oh, I forgot the the term now, but we we tend to understand concepts of the past based on our concepts of the present. It's like to go and try and see globality in the ancient period. Uh, Well, that's an anachronism. But an an anachronism is not necessarily negative. It allows us to explore phenomena that we see today in a different moment, but not trying to understand understand it under our current terms. So historical epistemology allows us to do that. And this 
uh, enterprise that uh, uh, comprised of these three volumes is an effort on historical epistemological analysis, trying to understand the knowledge formations that gave rise to specific uh, uh, ways of, uh, of seeing the creation of spaces uh, in, in different registers. So I don't know if that answers your question yeah. somehow, somewhat. It, it does indeed. Is that the word? Is the word you were searching for? Is it tele, teleology? No, no, teleology. it was anachronism actually. Oh, anachronism. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, okay. Anachronism. So the way you do it is you organize the book by by drawing on a range of case studies uh, of very diverse topics. Would you tell us a bit about the topics you and the authors in your collection chose, and and how you found things in common, and how you found things that are uh, that vary, and how that serves how that serves this purpose? Well, it's it's for, for us. It was quite an adventure because I I had the original idea, then I recruited a couple of colleagues to give us uh, to to give a hand with thinking about this. We decided to run a small workshop, an international workshop, for which we invited a very very interesting uh, uh, American scholar, Ricardo Padron, who's a professor of uh, Hispanic Studies um, at the University of, uh, of, um, of Virginia. And, um, and Ricardo talked to, he was writing a, a book that actually just came out, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's called The Indies of the Rising Sun. He's right, he was writing about the, the, the Spanish Empire in the Pacific, but uh, from a slightly different geographical perspective that we normally have. Anyway, Ricardo came and he spoke to us, but this was quite weird because what was normally an audience of international relations ended up being addressed by a professor of Hispanic studies and uh, in literature, Hispanic literature, and uh, the perspectives he brought were absolutely fresh for us. I don't know how fresh for his audience, but for us it was fantastic. And around his keynote and everything, we we invited, we, we launched uh, a call for papers, and we got very interesting uh, um, uh, replies. And so we ended up having chapters that came out of that conference, uh, such as the problem of faciality, so the face and the digital. Uh, in the politics of identity, that was uh, by Karina Husey. We had uh, we have a wonderful uh, uh, chapter on um, the paradoxes of transpacific connectivity in the 19th century. Uh, this is a moment where ports were being linked in the Pacific in a very particular way. Um, and this is the case of uh, Sujin Eom. We also had one that deals, and this is by, by uh, Dr. Barry Ryan at the University of Kiel. Uh, he wrote about zones at sea. So the problem of zoning at sea and the properties of connectivity then to come out of that. We also had a very good article on the, pro, on the idea of uh, sovereignty uh, in China. So the shift from uh, the Chinese imaginary of connectivity in the 19th century. And one uh, on cartography in the 19th century uh, in relation to the the creation of uh, Germandom, so the the the, the whole geopolitical uh, imaginary prior to the Third Reich. Uh, we also had a chapter on on landscape painting uh, in the case of uh, Friedrichs uh, Germany, and uh, finally we had some 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 a couple of uh, very interesting uh, chapters on imaginaries of rurality in the Catalan Pyrenees and something uh, relevant to that uh, in relation to organisms, nodes, and networks, which was more on the area of history of science. So we actually brought together a very complex realm of, uh, um, of sites, and they, they were all connected by three very simple questions. 
simple but not but, but complex at the same time. And the questions were in their specific case study, what was being connected, how what how was that being connected, and to what effect? So what was the the, the connectivity effect? And uh, the beauty of this was that we 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 found a way to bring completely different gest- uh, uh, registers to speak to a common problem, which is how are we to understand the problem of imaginous of connectivity in the creation of specific spaces of governance. So that's in a in a nutshell what these different chapters are about and how we got to put them together. That's a terrific summary. Uh, thank you. Uh, let's let's start. Let's start with the lead chapter in this collection, which is yours, and it's about the moment that uh, Europeans or Iberian explorers rounded Africa into the Indian Ocean world and leaped the Atlantic into the New World, so-called, and then soon after the Pacific, as you say. Could you describe the importance of this moment in history? For me, it's an absolutely uh, fabulous moment uh, because it allows us to come to the conclusion that there's never been a stable understanding of novelty in history. Novelty is an idea that changes uh, with time. Uh, the very idea of modernity, which many people take to uh, begin uh, um, um, in terms of temporality around the end of the 15th century, um, is in itself uh, a premised upon a very specific understanding of novelty. So I say, for instance, in, in, in the book that modernity has been articulated around a specific understanding or problematization of novelty, namely that of discovery. And this for me is fascinating because when I was uh, starting to do research in the 16th century, I was always very excited to see uh, the quality of the description of things. Uh, it's a time when we didn't have, and, and I speak in the plural because I kind of feel myself as inhabiting that century every day. I wake up in the 16th century and go to bed in it as well. And I'm fascinated to see how people then were describing things and the, the complexity of the description, but also even the angst you could read in between the lines on how they were really trying to give shape to something that was unknown until them for uh, until then for them in order for others to get to recognize it in, in other terms it was a, a, a very uh, um, complex practice and, and sets of, uh, of, uh, of conducts that allowed them to bring into being something which did not exist yet for others that is bringing in my own terms something into the epistemic domain now, uh, this is fascinating because at the time, um, let's say that the imaginary that predominated at the time uh, was one that uh, had come from the Middle uh, uh, Middle Ages. Um, and here I'm referring particularly with the recovery of the classics uh, and uh, the classics, not just the, the classic Greeks, but uh, the classic Romans. And we have the, the central figures of... Uh, uh, Cicero, for instance, uh, who would uh, n- who would not recognize the idea of novelty as such, but the idea of recurrence. So, for 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 these classical thinkers, uh, something novel was the recognition of some something that someone before, somebody more learned and more experienced, more wiser, had actually already described. So in a way, it was a, a way of bringing back into knowledge 
something that had already been known. That was the understanding of novelty of the time uh, at the end of the, of the Middle Ages. So uh, finding something that had not been known, before, that, that was not recognized, the immediate attitude was to go and try to correlate it with something that had been described by the ancients. So just to give you an example, so you find an iguana somewhere in, the, in what we call the Americas today, and then they would look at this thing and they would say, well, what, what do you look like? Hmm. <laughs> let's, let's think of the, the, the catalogs of bestiaries that the, the, the ancients had given to us and that we compi- compiled throughout the Middle Ages. Yeah, you look like an alligator with the head of this and that, so maybe we're going to kind of call you like this, but you don't quite match that description. So at the beginning, there was a lot of effort to try to uh, correlate the, the, the present experience with a known experience. And they realized very quickly that just that didn't work because they were being exposed and exposing themselves to things that were completely different. So then they had to very carefully and very wisely start to craft new names and new descriptions for what they were finding. But of course, this is a world where you have an order of the real and that order of the real understood as uh, the real had been stabilized through theological uh, uh, design or through theological understanding and through the naturalization of science. And for instance, the way Aristotle had been Christianized uh, in, the, in the 13th century onwards and so on, that was, that was stable, so to speak. So if you're going to intervene in that, that order of the real and come up with new new uh, ways of describing phenomena and bringing into the realm of the real something which apparently did not exist, you were in danger because actually you were going against the canon and you could even be accused of heresy. So you have to be very, very careful to do that. It's, it's fascinating to see how these people were doing it and who was doing it, who were the so-called scientists of the time. You take, for instance, the figure of um, Jose de Costa, Jose de Costa, a Jesuit, uh, who actually uh, um, wrote this this amazing natural history and, and philosophy of, of the Indies, uh, where what you see is, and when you read his text in, in detail, you realize that he was an artist of intellectual diplomacy. He was very carefully working on the fringes of knowledge without breaking the, without creating a revolution as such, but always on the margin, pushing the margin further, uh, uh, um, allowing that to belong to the realm of God's creation without denying it, but actually changing the theology of knowledge behind it. And in doing so very, very, very carefully, they started introducing new forms of knowing that were immediately recognized by the church because they were agents of the church. They were, they, they, they were priests. Now, stop me, by the way, Christoph, if I'm talking too long, but uh, no. this, this leads me to say something about his, his character as a priest. He was, he was a Jesuit. And here, well, he was born in 1540, so it gives you the, the more or less the location uh, in, in time. The Jesuits uh, were a very, very new creation. Mm. And they were instituted not as a monastic order, which was cloistered, but they were meant to go and know the world. They were meant to be in the world. So when, um, when José de Acosta was sent to 
uh, what we know as Peru now, the vice royalty of Lima at the time, uh, he was uh, sent with uh, two others. These were one of the first Jesuits to come there. And uh, they were actually educated to educate. The, the education of a, of a Jesuit then and, and still now uh, had to do with theology, with, uh, with uh, philosophy, and, um, and, and, um, well, and something else. But what they would do is that they would go and deal with the world, with the world of God, of course. They could redescribe it. They were highly educated people. Uh, and they had a lot of influence on how to connect knowledge together. This wonderful uh, work now being done around the correspondence of Jesuits in this time and the creation of this global imaginary of space. Some people in, 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 in Lisbon are doing that uh, right now. But anyway, he was a Jesuit. He had all these connections. He could start doing this kind of stuff. And they had, by virtue of your, their education, the university education, and the connections with the high excellence of the church in Spain, uh, they could have a lot of influence on, let's say, the canon in the, in the, in the court. And just to finish this part, something that very few people know about this, this period in, in Spain is that part of the, 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 the let's say, administrative uh, changes that, uh, uh, of the Catholic kings had to do with the claiming back the authority to name bishops from, from, from the Pope. So in Spain, the bishops would not be named by the Pope, but by the Catholic kings. That gives them a lot of authority. It, it puts the religion at the service of the state. But uh, uh, we should not see it in terms of dogmatism. We should see it in terms of governance. So you have uh, the Archbishop, the, the Bishop of Toledo, um, whose name I just forgot now, but he is the one who is deciding who goes to the Indies uh, and to do what. But he is the second in command in the power structure within the kingdom. So you have a direct relationship there between court, the, 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 the Jesuits in this case, which are being sent, the knowledge they're producing and the effect that knowledge is going to have at the court. This is a very interesting moment where you have you're, you're, you're speaking truth to power in a particular way. So that, that, uh, that uh, process uh, starts to change the idea of novelty then, and incredibly quickly. So there is this idea that, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Hispanic governance in the 16th century was, uh, uh, um, was uh, papist, and it was, uh, by virtue of that, was uh, retrograde, and it was... Uh, 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 seen as uh, something that was mystic and scholastic and very old-fashioned and so on. And actually, it's quite the country. By the way, these are, are arguments that come in, in, in Bacon's work a couple of centuries later. But it was quite the country. You see a lot of freshness in what these people are doing. And you see claims that they're making, which to all sound a bit grand at the time. For instance, many of the mariners of Iberia, when they were sailing in, in, in what we call American waters now and in the, in the southern Atlantic, they made claims to be the first moderns because they were being exposed for the first time to constellations of stars that were not visible to the ancients. And therefore, the cosmology that they could develop from there onwards was completely different. And, uh, well, that, that is kind of an eye-opener. You see that something is happening. Now, just to finish this, uh, the understanding of novelty that arises from this very exciting moment is actually an imaginary of, of invention. It's not discovery. It's actually inventing stuff. It's inventing 
uh, uh, spaces, it's inventing animals, it's inventing modes of reasoning as such. And the time of scholasticism, under which many of these thinkers were, were, were trained, was completely over through practice, actually, not through university reforms, but through empirical, uh, what we would call these days empirical research. So you said a, a lot of very interesting things just now. And um, one thing I, I uh, am delighted by is the importance of giving things names like your iguana, um, which doesn't sound like a, a crocodile. It sounds like a new name. It sounds like an indigenous name, whereas, a, yeah, and which is probably the best way to go. For example, the fact that they found this new land and they said, oh, well, these are the Indies shows, well, it had to be something that was already already familiar. But I, I like to show my students the famous um, uh, sketch of the pineapple, the piña, that Oviedo shows, because in English, I mean, a pineapple is not from a pine tree and it is not an apple, but it is sweet and it is prickly. And so it, it shows you how they're able to take existing uh, ideas and and you use that language and I think I think we often we often do that uh, and um, Acosta, who the Jesuit you were you're telling us about that I remember reading in in his maybe it's the history of the Indies where he's in the temper uh, the the torrid zone of Aristotle where he believe he's near the equator and he you know it's it's a place where no human's supposed to survive and he said actually it's quite it's quite pleasant here, and he laughs. He laughs at the philosopher Aristotle. So uh, you're framing this as, I think you said, intellectual diplomacy is extremely helpful because he's pushing, you know, the way uh, he's pushing the knowledge just a little bit, but not too far. They're all priests. Copernicus was a priest, right? And he did not get in trouble because he was far from Rome, whereas poor Galileo, even though his looking through the telescope was much later, did get in trouble because of his proximity. And that's such a, that's such a delicate line to tread for these, these pioneers. Uh, and like you say, the church was the, the frontier. Today we think of the church as a, as a more conservative social influence and maybe divorced from, from scientific discovery. But at this time, these were the people who could write. These were the people who went first. That's right. To the far the universities. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. There's there's something interesting here with what you said. So so this idea of referring to the pineapple, it's a typical uh, uh, strategy of uh, what uh, Michael North has called a, a, a recombination or a recombinant strategy, which is that you recombine what is known into something that you can describe. So the pineapple. It's a bit like the symbol for the computer. Uh, uh, in, in, in Chinese, which is a, is a, is a, is a kind of calculating machine, right? So you, mm-hmm. you kind of bring different things into something which is quite novel. But the, the issue of the, of the Torah zone is fascinating as well because we also need to understand these people in their, in their context, right? So uh, for several centuries, well, for almost a millennia, it, it, it was believed that if you sail to the, to the, yeah, to the Torah zone, uh, especially by the equator, it was so hot that uh, a human life would not be tolerable. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful anecdote that came from one of the, the, the trips of, uh, of um, uh, oh, who was this? I always uh, forget my names. But um, yeah, uh, when Bartolomeo Bartolome Diaz uh, was sailing to what we know as Cape of Good Hope, this is 1488, on the first trip, uh, they were nearing the equator, and they had some rudimentary ways of measuring 
latitude. So they, they knew they were approaching it, and suddenly they see this big cloud uh, on the on the over the water, steam. They thought, well, that's the equator. We're gonna we're going to evaporate, right? That's evaporation. <laughs> well, then they turn back eventually. And uh, uh, the, the king uh, sent them back and said, you cowards, you have to go and try it again. And they did. And it, it was a natural phenomenon that actually did uh, uh, evaporate a lot of water, but they could circumvent it very easily. And then they could keep on going south, which is what they did, right? But they had to overcome that fear that had to do with the imaginary uh, of the time, right? Now, this idea that the Torrid Zone was uninhabitable uh, by the time of Jose de Costa was widely known, that that was not the case, but widely known by very few people, right? Those who had traveled and written and read this kind of books and so on. But f- for Jose de Costa and for Américo Vespucci and for all these uh, uh, travelers at the time, uh, scientists or mariners or whatever they were, the world was one of experience, they would not be the kind of armchair intellectuals who would read the books and theorize about that, but they would go and experience by themselves. And in the process of that, they had to label stuff. They had to describe stuff. Very much like a term that was being used by by some uh, historians at my uh, current university some years ago, which is that of committing history. Well, every time you label something new, you commit history, right? And the, 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 the reason is very simple, is that you make an intervention in the current order of the real. And an intervention is that you disrupt that order of the real by introducing something which was not there. That's an event, a historical event, right? But there's power relations around that. So the case of the iguana, which was a, a name adopted by uh, from the local people, as many names were adopted, uh, that is... Fascinating because when we think of this idea of the conquest of the new world, the discovery of the new world, we are completely annihilating a beautiful process that was actually taking place there, which was that there was a syncretism taking place there between, let's say, uh, European ways of knowledge with local ways of knowledge. And from there on, what's that iguana? is no longer, I don't know, an alligator with the shape of this or the, the, the face of that, but it is actually an iguana. And if we start thinking the cosmology that underlies that concept of, that local concept of an iguana, that actually permeates the Western imaginary. And in many cases, in unconscious ways. So it's beautiful because we start realizing that this was not necessarily the art of domination and conquest and annihilation that many... Uh, Post, uh, um, post-colonial theory uh, uh, describes to us these days, but it was actually uh, a moment of absolute wonder for whatever side was involved, and I'm not denying the violence that went into it, but epistemologically, it was a moment of wonderful syncretism in creativity that uh, we are yet really to, to discover in this case uh, through historical epistemology. So the the name America comes from this rather audacious cartographer, Vespucci. And I know you were born in Colombia, so that's another fellow. Uh, and that name appears, you know, that appears here in like Washington, D.C. or Columbia University and stuff like that. Um, so do we just name things after ourselves or if it's an object, we take it from um, what, what you, uh, the what, I forgot the term you gave us from, from Michael North, but for re- recombining existing. Recombination, yeah. Recombination, yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's very interesting because uh, the, the, the whole process of labeling um, has very concrete uh, uh, um, context. Uh, so, for instance, the labeling of, uh, of the Americas. I mean, Columbus died without knowing that what he had uh, come across was actually a continent. He still thought this was a collection of islands when he died. <coughs> Americo Vespucci uh, had already uh, done a Do, couple may of... I ask, may I ask, uh, in, in his heart of hearts, do you think he thought that? Or was he making an argument because of the contract he'd drawn up with Isabella and Ferdinand that he had to get to China or India? Do you think he really, really believed that he... Or, you know, I know that's well, purely conjecture, yeah. but I asked her. As far as I know from what I've read, uh, the state of the art is that he died in full belief that he had reached the Indies, mm-hmm. uh, what we call the Indies, right? So that was yes. uh, uh, the East. Um, the moment uh, just after he died, that's when uh, the, the, the term America was used for the first time. And this was in Valsimulus. Uh, mapping of uh, uh, 1507, if I'm not right. Yeah, 1507, Martin Balsimuller. And he labeled that as the, the well, as, as a continent, America. But if you ever look at that map, actually what you see there is a very small Americas, so to speak. Uh, and much of that is conjecture. It was not, uh, much of the land that he, he, he draws in that map was not known there yet. It had not been explored uh, yet. So there is a lot of conjecture at the time. But, okay, so Valsi Müller mentions this land from the name of Americo Vespucci, who was actually, uh, he was was a wonderful mariner, a a very able uh, uh, explorer, but he was also a cartographer, what we would uh, call at the time a cosmographer. And he actually became the the chief cosmographer of the the crown in Spain, (coughs) well, Castile at the time. But he was also very indebted to his patrons in uh, in Italy, in the the Medicis. And in several letters that he was writing to them, he referred to these discoveries. uh, And uh, in a way, he was the one who was blowing the trumpet, whereas the, 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 the Castilian crown was very discreet about what was being found. Uh, this was a bit of a, an entrepreneur, and he was blowing the trumpet, writing to his patrons and selling his knowledge here and there. And that's why that becomes known as, uh, as uh, uh, America. Later on, uh, Copernicus refers to these lands discovered by a uh, man, Americo Vespucci. Uh, but so that's, that's the name uh, medical. Now, the figure of Columbus is very interesting, too, because if you were to go and ask somebody in Europe and, and in Spain in particular about a Christopher Columbus in the 18th century, he would be an unknown figure. This, he was not known. Now, the re, re, hmm, how, relaunching of the persona mm-hmm. of Columbus has to, ta- has to do with the uh, independence of uh, colonies in the American continent. Uh, where they start to claim that they are actually something different from Europe. They're not an extension for Europe. And you start to mythify uh, the whole idea of the discovery. There's a very famous painting in the uh, Naval Museum of Madrid. Uh, It's very famous because it's the painting where you see uh, indigenous people kneeling in front of Columbus and his cross um, when he uh, disembarked for the first time in La Española. And uh, that became an, an iconic uh, visual moment of uh, Europe coming into the Americans and 
claiming this land for the kings and so on and so forth. But that painting is from the 19th century. Uh, we have a recreation of that past in the uh, 19th century in order to claim the legitimacy of a hemisphere, uh, geographically speaking. Uh, so that labeling is always very controversial. Uh, hence, then, you know, you, you start finding the, 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 the use of the name uh, Columbus for things. So Colombia, the District of Colombia in the, in the U.S. and so on. But that was not used before. You wouldn't use the term. So here, the reason I'm mentioning this is that when we talk about these historical processes, there's a lot of imperialism involved uh, from past and from, from, uh, from presence, of course. You recreate history uh, based on specific ideologies or, or, or strategic political processes. I think that's very important. And I had no idea that he passed into obscurity for a couple of centuries there before the independent, the uh, age of revolutions uh, in in um, Bolivaran and American and I'm sure, you know, Haitian revolutions and things like that. Um, it also explains how he was so useful in the 19th century, which was a moment that at least in the United States, the 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 young republic, really the young empire was trying to reach from sea to shining sea and it needed these heroes. And so in the 400th uh, anniversary of of the of uh, in 1892, he you know people were naming cities and building statues. When I was a uh, a student uh, in high school on the 500th anniversary, our our political sympathies had completely shifted, and my high school on that anniversary named Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples of the Americas Day, and he was he passed from a hero into a villain, and he's probably a little of both. Uh, yeah. In, and that is the whole decolonial movement at the moment, yeah. which uh, is very controversial because of uh, its particular understanding of the past and the present and the future, no? But okay, that's yeah. the subject of okay. another conversation. Sure, but okay, so you one, one central argument of your essay and of this collection is that novelty is infused with the need to govern, uh, as, in, as you say. And um, I, I've always, well, I've always understood and then repeated to students that it was easy for the um, Spaniards to make sense of the Aztec or the Mexica uh, empire because it was familiar. It was a top-down um, hierarchy that was based on taxes and it had uh, you know, s- structures they could superimpose their own authority upon. And they also were able to find allies who would help them fight the Aztecs at Tlaxcala and others who would then help them govern. But once they got out of the sort of city centers in the Valley of Mexico, and they went west and north and encountered different different people like the Chichimeca, it was very hard for them to understand how who these people were. Is, is that an accurate way to read the, the conquest that was not only based on sm- smallpox and um, different technologies of communication and military, but also on familiar reading an empire as an empire that it's, yes, it's the other side of the ocean, but we know it, how to how to run this kind of enterprise. That's a, that's a very good point that you're mentioning here, because of course, when try to think as a so-called conquistador that you arrive at this kind of place and uh, you start hearing uh, stories, and, and actually, when when Hernan Cortes uh, uh, reached the, the the Yucatan Peninsula and established contact with some people, he started hearing about these people that they hated, right? that they were the oppressors, that they were doing this and that, and that they were fighting against. So 
okay, you start making alliances and you start doing that. There were very few, by the way, very few Spaniards, but there were thousands of uh, local indigenous groups opposed to the Mexicas that uh, would go and, and join them and go and do what they did. And this this has come to us as the, funny enough, as the Aztec Empire. And the, the term, as far as I know, was never used by them. But uh, that is how we, 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 we know it. And empire, that was not a concept they had. Uh, and in fact, it was not a concept known in the Andes either with the, with the so-called uh, Inca Empire. This is a typical case of recombination, where you or recurrence uh, of knowledge, where you try to apply something that is known to something that you are encountering, and uh, as you nicely put, some of the structures kind of resembled imperial orders that were known for Europeans, but many of them made no sense whatsoever. And from a religious perspective, for instance, uh, it, it made no sense uh, the kind of sacrifices that. The, some of the Mexicas were doing and so on, and the kind of temples they had and the hierarchies, etc. But it was an order of the real that was taking place there. Incredibly violent, we know, uh, and they were not the only violent ones, uh, there were so many, which, by the way, dismounts this idea of the noble savage, uh, which was so prominent in the Age of Enlightenment, right? And, and the idea that the Spanish came and then they, they raped and, uh, and, and polluted and contaminated this idea of the noble savage, where actually these people were really taking their eyes out of each other, right? And the Spanish came, or the Castilians came, and did whatever they did. The case of the, of the Inca Empire, the, the so-called Tawantisuyu, which again doesn't correspond to an understanding of empire, came to the Spanish as a wonderful surprise because the structure of organization was so complex that they couldn't understand how they could govern this in such a centralized form. Uh, the diversity of the four parts of the Tawantisuyu was such that it required a very complex system of organization that they couldn't understand. Later on, uh, ex post facto, we came to understand how different uh, uh, government instruments, uh, such as the kipu, these were uh, uh, knotting systems in, in, in court and in ropes, where they could keep accounts and they could uh, create a form of organization. It was, in fact, a form of writing that we didn't understand in Europe and we're only starting to understand now. We're, we were brought up with this idea, remember, in school that uh, ancient civilizations in the Americas did not have writing. They didn't have the kind of writing we have, but they had, for instance, in the, in the, uh, for, 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 the, for Central and North America, they had uh, glyphs. Uh, which were pictoric, and they're incredibly complex. They're, they're, they're being not, deci- not translated, but decif- deciphered in the kipu, uh, but it, it was not, did not correspond to the digital form of writing that we have through digits, which convey a particular meaning. Uh, these were forms of meaning which were cosmological in inception, which for us is incredibly different to, uh, difficult to understand. And I'll finish this very long answer with an example, <laughs> which is that in the Relaciones Geográficas, which was a campaign that was organized in times of uh, um, Philip II, uh, whereby uh, the, let's say, the crown wanted to gather systematic information of the different kingdoms it, it held, uh, it created a questionnaire, which, by the way, was one of the very first printed questionnaires in the history uh, of Europe, uh, where they had a, a limited number of questions. I think there were 30 or so. 
one of which was asking the governor or the, the mayor of the place to uh, provide a map of the space that they ruled. And, uh, and on, uh, um, on purpose, not using the term territory, because it's, uh, it's quite contentious in that, in that period. Uh, spaces too, by the way. But, uh, okay, he asked them about this. And this is uh, what is known as the Relaciones Geográficas. Okay, so some of these governors and mayors or, or whatever they were received this, and uh, they commissioned local artists to draw the map. And then they sent it. And some of these maps uh, still remain at the Archivo de Indias in, in, in Seville. And I've seen many of those. And I try to th- think uh, as a 16th century uh, uh, member of the, of the Consejo de Indias, the, the Council of the Indies, which governed uh, the Indies. And I would either start laughing when I see this painting, or I would go crazy, or I would just try to ignore it. Because you look at it and you say, how on earth would this be considered to be a map? And of course, it didn't correspond, correspondence here is important, didn't correspond to the imaginary of space that Europeans were familiar with, with their cartography and, and mapping practices. But it was, in fact, a map, which was a visual representation of what these people considered to be their space. And in one of the questions, they asked them to relate that map to the hierarchies of the place and uh, ancestry. And one of these maps has, uh, I think, is Father Leopard with Mother Snake uh, bringing together little, I don't know, some other animal and so on and so forth. And you, you could think, well, that's, that's just a joke. Actually, no. It's actually giving a credence to a particular imaginary of space, which is cosmological in, in its inception, but it cannot be translated uh, into, it does not have a direct correspondence to the systems of knowledge that were uh, current in the European imaginary of the time. So this is fascinating because what we end up having here in terms of labeling and so on, again, is not an imposition of one model upon the other, but it's the encounter of different modes of reasoning that start giving place to new spaces, spaces of governance, governance because the people and the things are being governed through this, but they're highly original. There's a lot of creativity in, the, in the, the technologies of governance that are developed in this period. So it's absolutely fascinating. And whenever we see a new label, it should be a giveaway of actually a moment of creativity rather than a moment of imposing one imperial form of knowledge over the other. That is a, a wonderful and fascinating example. And because I study the 16th, century uh, Spanish Empire, and because the first essay is yours, we could go on much longer. However, I, I don't want to finish the hour without talking about the other essays in your in your collection, and I'd like, like you to, to, to present what, what, uh, which ones are uh, most, um, which ones jump out in, 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 in your thinking about the subject. The one that I think we should talk about is the second chapter by Karina Husey, about digital surveillance technology, because that's the kind of novelty we are living through at the moment. And I have, you know, I'm surprised every time some, some, something recognizes my face or wants to label me, or I can use my fingerprints to, to pay for something. Um, what, you, what you call uh, biopolitics and faciality uh, in the second chapter, uh, it's, it's about uh, government projects using the face, something called the Janus Project. And one fascinating criticism of it where 
the those who were condemning this um, technology showed it to members of Congress who were incorrectly identified with faces of people in a criminal database. And um, but it's useful in in policing and the war on terror and so on. What's this? Um, may I ask you to tell us about this uh, this frontier? We are going through at this very moment in the year 2021 as we're speaking and and how it compares or, or how we should think about it. It's also a fascinating uh, uh, essay that I encourage everybody to read. And, and, and Karina is an incredibly gifted thinker who actually senses things in ways that others don't. And, and her critique is quite to the spot. Let me just say a couple of things about this is that we know uh, theoretically about biopolitics, which is the government uh, uh, of, uh, of making things live and letting other things die, which was very, this was very much described and championed by uh, Michel Foucault uh, in the 70s and the early 80s. But uh, okay, we have a lot of descriptions about that and everything. The case of the face and the technologies of face recognition with uh, identity politics uh, is something which is uh, very much the, the uh, very, very current of our, in our time. But what's taking place there is not completely dissimilar to the practices of uh, labeling that I was re- referring to in the 16th century. Because what we're doing through face recognition or iris recognition or even dactylar recognition, right? All these forms of trying to identify specific features which makes sure that that is what we claim to be and nothing else, right? So that our identity corresponds to who we really are. It's an indelible marker of who we are. That is, that is the whole strife, right? And we want to identify people efficiently and effectively uh, at a distance. That is the whole uh, practice of, uh, of face recognition and so on. But it's not completely different from describing what an iguana is in relation to other animals, right? It's a, it's a process of describing something as unique. And in the process of labeling as unique, then you can govern it. So one of the big headaches for many states these days is the idea of dual nationality. So you want your identity should be super stable. If you have dual nationality, uh, maybe you're not so stable in terms of your identity, right? Uh, many countries oppose that. Some others are very happy to, to allow it uh, because you can be defined in slightly different terms. And um, so being able to identify something in, under unique terms is an urgency. But it's not a new urgency. It's an urgency that has been there ever since we have a particular system of governance and rule, which in my opinion begins in the 16th century. Now, this process of labeling uh, things or people or processes is super important because once you define your object of governance, then you can go and govern it. If you cannot define it clearly, then you have troubles. So just to give you a very quick uh, example of, uh, of this, and I'll come back to face recognition, is that the problem of piracy uh, is something I've written about in the past. The problem of piracy in the Malacca Strait in at the turn of the 20th century. So the Malacca Strait is one of these very important choke points through which most trade from, from, from the east goes to the west and so on and so forth. There were lots of pirate attacks in, in those waters, which are not very white. You can see from one side to the other 
in a, in a regular day. Uh, and uh, eventually, the, the, the U.S. Navy uh, threatened to intervene, and the littoral states said, no, these are domestic waters, you cannot intervene. Japan was fed up with the situation, said, we're going to send some ships. And they said, no, Japan, you have a bad reputation in these waters. Go away. We don't forget history. China threatened to do the same thing. And eventually, uh, something happened, and uh, that problem disappeared, by the way. Are we, uh, are we talking about the, uh, 20 years ago or 120 years ago when 20, you say 20, 20, 20 okay, years so, ago. And eventually, okay. the whole thing was sorted out, uh, surprisingly, by Lloyds of London. But I'm not going to tell you how. <laughs> it's an insurance thing. Okay. But the interesting point here was that the big discussion then was, how are we going to call these acts? Are we going to call them piracy? When, according to international law, the international law of the seas, piracy is an act in international waters, but these are not international waters. Are we going to call it terrorism, as many states in the area wanted to? Uh, and if you call it terrorism, it's actually very practical because it allows for all kinds of extraordinary measures that uh, exceed the legal codes and so on and so forth. Or are we just going to call them uh, common delinquency, right? For which we just have law enforcement agencies that go and ca- uh, catch the bad guys. The label was super important because once you call it one way or the other, the treatment changes, right? So the government of however you call it uh, changes with the label. So this comes with face recognition again. If you can be identified in a particular way, that is going to enable a particular form of governance. So uh, uh, when when you look at how different governments uh, uh, design face recognition and use it, they're not necessarily compatible. They're focusing in different kinds of ways. And when then uh, Karina goes into the problem of the algorithm that enables this face recognition, so it's the technology that enables the labeling of the subject in this case, which is a subject of governance. So that chapter opens up this debate very nicely to scrutiny, and I think brings up the debate on biopolitics, biopolitics, biopolitics of security, uh, uh, which was very prominent some 15 years ago, back to the fore, but with much more nuanced elements. So that's definitely a, a chapter that I would uh, recover. I don't know if you want me to talk about more. Yeah, you decide, because I, okay. I'm, I'm afraid we only have about 10 minutes and there's so much here. There's so much. I'm just going to mention one which links to the other book, which has to do with, uh, it's a chapter by Geneva uh, uh, Gulsha Chapin and uh, Philippe Rice. It's called Making Up Germans, Colonialism, Cartography, and Imaginaries of Germandom. So what these guys did, fantastic. They went to the Eustace Curtis uh, publishing house, which is a, a map-making house, if you wish, uh, in the town of Gotha in, in, in eastern Germany, the, very close to Erfurt. Uh, and uh, the, it's a publishing house that has been, uh, in, had been in business for uh, some 300 years. But it was the most influential publishing house in the 19th and the 20th century, before uh, the, the, uh, the, the mid-century. And uh, anyway, they started looking at the maps that they were publishing, and this predates the Third Reich by 100 years. And the imaginary of Germandom at the time was there. So they're, they're making maps of the whole world where the coloring in pink or yellow, uh, where the Germans are, right? They're not German territories, but they're German-speaking peoples. And they present it in such a way that you create a future imaginary of space, of German space, which would unite this kind of people, Right. Of course, we see this ex post facto. We see it after the Third Reich and 
like Hitler with Jim and all that, and that's kind of stuff they say, ah, it was there already, right? But there are very important nuances with regards to that. And the, the, the way in which different German people were classified and the, 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 the classification of the Jew is there as well, but not in the anti-Semitic way that uh, took place uh, some, some, some decades later and so on and so forth. So what these people are doing is that they're reading cartography in a, in my opinion, in a historically epistemological way that allows them to understand the terms around which this idea of Germandom was connected in the imaginary of the time. That also gives us some very interesting uh, opportunities to go and investigate the, the, the empirical space that that map is opening up for us. So the map is not telling us a story. The map is actually opening up the possibility for us to go and understand uh, multiple stories that are taking place in that map. So that's why I would like to uh, mention that that chapter there. But we can talk endlessly also about the well, other chapters. May, that's, that's yes, that, I know it's true. At this, this point about Germandom, I feel we see it also in American history. Uh, so if we teach things about the 19th century, we put up a big map of the United States and we say this zone, which was the, you know, let's say it's yellow here. This is where the 13 British colonies were. And then look, look at these settlers expanding out west, you know, past the Appalachian Mountains. And then we say, oh, look, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson bought uh, Louisiana from Napoleon. And look, he's doubled the size of the country. And then a little later in the middle of the 19th century, President Polk uh, started a war with Mexico so he could capture from Texas to California. And look, he's added this color. And um, one, and I took that very uh, credulously for a long time, especially as a, as a you know, a, a young student. And then um, it was in one of these uh, conversations for the New Books Network with um, Pekka Hamalainen, who wrote up the Comanche Empire. And he argued, yeah, you're pretending this is Spain or Mexico or France or Britain or the United States. But really, they just colored in a map. And the only people living here are indigenous people with a few outposts. And so whether Napoleon wants to sell Louisiana or not, there's very few Frenchmen outside of New Orleans living in this enormous territory. And the same thing with the Mexican-American War. We, we treat it as a you know, great um, affront to the sovereignty of Mexico, which it was. I'm not saying it was not, but in taking half of Mexico's territory, these, these Americans only took 1% of the population of that republic or, or empire. And, and really, it's an indigenous lands changing hands under the guise of uh, European flags that were not that meaningful in the exactly. real territory. Yeah. And even the European languages spoken at the time in what today is the United States were mostly but English. <laughs> so there, there had to be a very important decision at some point as to what the national language would be and so on. And, but what, what's fascinating there is that it reshapes the way we understand imperialisms, right? And the, and the role of different forms of imperialism in creating global spaces. And we talk normally about imperialisms uh, when we refer to Europe and, and partly Asia, but we don't think about imperialisms within the Americas itself, right? Uh, however natural they would be or local, but there were also other forms of imperialism at play there, uh, which were in dialogue, but got com- uh, completely forgotten, or bailed, or uh, uh, obliterated, right? So that's something we can actually look at in maps, which is what we do in the second volume. But that would be the subject of a different uh, podcast. 
I think we should. I think we should leave it there. We it feels like ten minutes, but we've been talking for an hour. And I thank you so much for being part of the New Books in History podcast and introducing this remarkable collection of essays. Now possible. I want to go and read the other ones too. <laughs> thank you so much for for hosting it, and it's been really an enormous pleasure to reflect about these things. The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much, Luis. Thank you. 